Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, host of Better Off. And on today's episode, Jason Zweig, personal finance columnist for The Wall Street Journal. What great experience Jason has, and boy, he has so much wisdom to share. There's no doubt in my mind that the vast majority of investors ought to have their entire portfolios run passively by machine in index funds without any or without much application of human judgment. People would be vastly better off if they did that. All that and more coming up on the Better Off Podcast. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. Okay, on this week's episode, I am really excited because we've got personal finance columnist, almost like the the dean of all personal finance, Jason Zweig. You've read him in the Wall Street Journal and before that, Money Magazine, Time Magazine. He's written lots of books, but what he really has is the benefit of being in this business for a long enough time to really see changes and changes that have really inured to your benefit. So when you listen to this, think about it and say, wow, here's a guy who has such great ability to translate complicated concepts and also be able to help me better my own life. We're also going to talk about Jason's new book, The Devil's Financial Dictionary. It's a bit cheeky, but more importantly, we are going to focus on the issues that really matter to your bottom line. And stay tuned. Don't forget, talking about issues that matter to your bottom line, we've got The Call. Yeah, The Caller of the Week. It's so great. If you would like to get on the program, just shoot us an email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. And we'll arrange to get you on. And don't forget, tell your friends about this show. This is the show that is trying to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and your life. Make sure you subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your stuff. But also, please leave us a rating in iTunes. Mark, the greatest producer in the world, says it matters. Okay, here's our interview with Jason Zweig. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. I am so excited because one of the people I admire so much in the journalism biz, in the financial journalism biz, is here with us today. Jason Zweig, who is an author, a personal finance columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and before that with Money Magazine, and generally um, a bit of a ray of sunshine in a densely populated group of folks who don't clear through the mess too much. I think that that's one of your greatest abilities. You cut through it, Jason. And so welcome to Better Off. Well, thank you, Joe. It's great to be with you. Um, So I have a question that we start every interview with on the show. Mm -hmm. What's the best money decision you have ever made? Ah. Well, you couldn't give me a warning on that one. No, so of I course to... not, because you know how it is. It's like live TV. <laughs> we don't right, give you the I have questions. To think about that on the fly. Yeah. Um, the best money decision I ever made, I think I would have to say, was partly the result of serendipity and partly a good decision, which is that um, during the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, I had I was working at the Wall Street Journal then as now, but I had a fair amount of um, outside income coming in from some unrelated things I had done, and it was a sizable amount of money in in the scheme of things in our our household. 
And um, I had long had a rule that whenever I got any additional cash, I would always invest one-third of it. And some of these checks were very substantial by our, by our standards. And I hesitated, and then I said, no, I have my rule. So I took a third of everything that came in, and I put it into my, basically into the index funds that have long been the core of my portfolio. And um, when I looked back recently, I realized that um, the money that I had put in during 2008 and 2009 had grown just to enormous size. So it was partly luck, and it was partly a good decision. But it's, it's, I like the idea that it's not really luck. It's actually you force yourself to adhere to your system, mm-hmm. which is pretty awesome. Yeah. I think, I think rules are, are just of huge importance. It helps when they're good rules. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you live your financial life by, by bad rules, you will get a bad result. I developed that rule, by the way. Uh, back when I was um, the mutual funds editor at Forbes magazine, I was walking down the street on my way to meet some friends of mine for lunch, and I stepped on what felt like paper, and I looked down, and in fact, it was money. And uh, I stood there for about five minutes to make sure the rightful owner didn't want to reclaim it because it might be somebody with a gun. And I took my foot off it eventually, bent down, picked it up, and put it in my pocket. And, How much? Well, I'll get to that in a second. And I, I went into the restaurant where my friends were waiting, the diner, and I said, I just found something. Uh, let's see what it is. And I pulled it out, and it, if I remember right, it was three, it might have been five, $100 bills. And what ended up happening was, of course, I bought lunch for all my friends. Yes, Needless but thankfully, thankfully, you were at a diner. We were at a diner, and it was uh, around 1990, so it wasn't wasn't a lot of money. But f- I ended up spending at least a hundred dollars more than the money I had found because of the windfall mentality. When money lands in your lap, you feel you can spend it all, and sometimes then some. And that's where that rule came from. I said, if if I ever come into money that is outside my paycheck, I'm not going to treat it like a windfall. I'm going to treat it the same way I would treat labor income, which is to really be careful with it. So talk a little bit about um, your career and what has happened in the industry as you've been part of this. How'd you get into this? Well, I got into financial journalism um, more or less by happenstance many years ago um, when I first joined Forbes magazine, which was right after the crash of 1987. And um, I quickly realized I liked it. And after about uh, five years, um, I became the mutual funds editor at Forbes. And in the first six weeks I did that job, I think I got more mail from readers than I had in the previous six years of all my other roles. And I realized people care about this stuff. Maybe some people care about it more than they should, but they care about it. In 1987, in the aftermath of the Great Crash, what was it like in the mutual fund world? What was going on then? Well, 
the whole investing world was sleepier and more primitive and a lot less sophisticated than it is today. In the late 80s and early 90s, investment management firms were really in the business of trying to figure out how to get people to buy stuff that was bad for them and good for the investment companies. So what ended up happening was people got income or yield, meaning every month they would get some check from a fund company or investment firm without noticing that their principal was disappearing. Mm. So they might have put up $5,000 or $10,000. Maybe they got a couple hundred dollars a month in income, but the money they put up in the first place was disappearing. And a lot of these people lost uh, much, some of them lost most of what they put in because we didn't yet really have a thoroughly fiduciary culture. Not that we do today, but it's better today than it was then. At, at that time, did you personally believe the concept that, you know what, there are stock pickers out there and someone can beat the market? Did you have that sense when you walked into that job? Oh, yes. Where my thinking has evolved from 30 years ago is that I've really come to believe that one of the single hardest things any investor can do is not to pick securities that will outperform the market, but to pick the managers who can pick securities that will outperform the market. I think that's much harder. I think it's easier to beat the market than it is to find someone who can beat the market. My thinking evolved to when I really just wrapped my head around the research and I became a huge passive investor cheerleader because I couldn't get around the numbers. I couldn't help myself. I mean, for me, can you imagine being in the business and saying no one can actually outsmart the market? Mm -hmm. So my pushback on the industry was that I kind of felt like there was a little bit of the tobacco company essence of it that, you know what, everyone kind of knew it was bad for you. But no one shifted early enough. I mean, the, the shift is happening as we speak. But I found that that was an eye-opening experience for me. It really threw into question what I thought was true. And it was hard. And I really I fought back against it a little bit, I think, internally. And then I finally went to my business partner one day and said, you know what? We just have to use exchange-traded funds and their indexes. And that's what we're going to use. That's the deal. And we'll have four different portfolios based on risk. But that's that. I, I can't do this anymore. And I pulled out all the research. And I think that was hard for me. And I think it's still hard for people to not think there's a man behind the curtain. Yeah, I think it is. And and I guess I have a couple quick thoughts on that, Jill. One is that a large part of what it means to be human is the need for magical thinking. There's a reason people believe in magic, because it is, it's comforting. I mean, nobody wants to believe that the universe is random and everything that happens to you or your or you and your money is luck and there's nothing you can do to change that or control it, that there's no one out there who can make better sense of the financial markets than some machine that runs an index fund. It's scary to sort of turn your financial life over to 
an acceptance of the belief that nobody knows the future. But nobody does know the future. <laughs> and and I guess the where I've come out on all of this is that I think people, investors and the financial advisors who help them should make a clear distinction between what people ought to do and what people can do. And there's no doubt in my mind that the vast majority of investors ought to have their entire portfolios run passively by machine in index funds without any or without much application of human judgment. People would be vastly better off if they did that. That's what they ought to do. Okay. Can they do that? I doubt it. Really? Because I think, well, what's the whole idea of the money that's flowing into index funds and passive funds? Do you think people are just going to still muck around with it once it goes yeah, there? Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people are doing the right thing for the wrong reason, which is a huge problem in, in the financial markets and the investing community. You know, in the short run, you can do quite well when you do the right thing for the wrong reason. But in the long run, if you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, you won't be able to stick to your plan because you don't really understand why you're doing it in the first place. So my view is that for most people, what you should do, what you ought to do, is what you can do because then you'll stick to it. And I think what most people can do is they can put most of their assets in passive funds just tracking market indexes and then they're going to need a little fun money to, to play. play with. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to my interview with Jason Zweig in just a minute. I just love the concept of the passive approach to investing. First of all, it takes the onus off of you. It's so much easier. And that is one of the greatest things about our sponsor, Betterment, because they too adhere to a passive approach. Look, you don't know where the market is going next. And and that's why part of the game of being an investor is sticking to a strategy that works over the long term. There are so many unknowns out there. Well, our sponsor, Betterment, has technology that helps you plan for the future and manage your investments intelligently. And they also pay really close attention to lowering fees and minimizing taxes. Hey, that's important this time of year, right? So, Betterment, what do they do? Globally diversified portfolio, automatic rebalancing, tax-efficient features, award-winning customer service, a fiduciary to boot. You know how much I love that. Anyway, I could go on. But if you actually are thinking about how to approach your investing, you should check out Betterment. And if you've got a more complex financial life, you want someone to talk to, Betterment has Two new service plans that give you access to a team of CFP professionals. Hey, I'm a CFP. I love that designation. And licensed financial experts. Don't waste your time and money spinning your wheels. Head over to Betterment. Sign up through our podcast link and you can get one month managed free. Visit Betterment.com slash better off for the offer and more information. Okay, now back to Jason Zweig. How can we help people do what they can. I think the first principle is to think about how to make machines and people work together. 
and I've written quite a bit about this in the past couple of years, you know, um, the model that I think is pretty powerful to think about is um, freestyle chess. You know, in chess, increasingly, games are being played not between human and human and not between human and machine, but between teams of a human and a machine and on the other team, another human and another machine. And what people who study chess have found is that a machine playing chess can often beat just about any human and in some cases can beat every human, but a machine teamed with a human can beat any machine. And so we, what we have to do is we have to sort of find ways to couple human intelligence and computer intelligence to improve decisions. And there are lots of ways we can do that. Um, machines are faster, they're more efficient, they're less error prone, assuming they're programmed by people who know what they're doing. Uh, there are some things that I think humans are still much better at than machines. Machines can write rules that will tell them when a person is likely to be to become emotional. I mean, if the stock market falls 50% this afternoon, that can trigger an automatic alert for a computer, which can then uh, flag it for a human financial advisor. You need to call the client now. And for now, at least, we don't want the computer comforting the client. We want a human comforting the client for so, now. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's funny is that... Um a number of years ago, early in the automatic investing platforms coming out, I wrote a big article about it in my Tribune column, and um, I got some real significant hate mail from the f um, advisor community. Like, you are one of us, and why are you right. putting us out of business mm -hmm, now? Mm -hmm. And I maintained then, and I maintain today, that using that platform whatever it is that just kind of puts the investing on the autopilot, even so that the advisor doesn't muck around with it, can then focus the advisor on doing the things that humans do really well, which is like, I'm listening to Jason mm -hmm. tell me about his aging parents. Yeah. Like that that's something that I do need a human to do. Correct. And I don't, I really don't understand the pushback from the industry because in some ways it's like this, every time there's this little friction point in the, in the business, they fight it so hard and they look like idiots for fighting it, right? Because mm -hmm. then you come back and you say, well, why'd you fight it? You're good. Remember, I'm sure you'll remember this. I remember when we were talking about online trading, it was going to be the death of Wall Street. Right. Right? I don't think mm -hmm. so. Mm-hmm. They seem to have made quite a bit of money in that business. Yep. Well, I think it's I think it's uh, I think it's sort of the inevitable cycle of progress in any industry. I mean, there's a much more important question that consumers should be asking, which is if my financial advisor feels so threatened that a computer could put him or her out of business, maybe I need a new financial <laughs> advisor. Yeah, no kidding. So let's get into that a little bit. We're talking to Jason Zweig, a personal finance columnist, author of The Devil's Financial Dictionary, which may have like the best cover ever for any financial book because there is a, a devil in a suit. Sort of uh, it's like whatever Lola wants, you're going to get in that investment <laughs> advisor right Sorry. there. Um, I guess that since we're talking about the devilish financial... So let me just say, I will come out and tell you that 
as someone who came out of the financial services industry, what I often will say is I think of financial services, especially investment management side of the business, like a drunk relative that I'm related to this person. I love this person. I admire this person. But man, when that person misbehaves, it's freaking ugly. Mm -hmm. And so... I, and he needs help. And he needs help. Yeah. And he, and just he needs, can't admit it. Except that to say he needs to start yeah. by admitting he has a problem. <laughs> so considering that this, I, I think you're taking this as your metaphor as well, what can we, what can the consumer do to help navigate this devilish industry? Well, the first principle, I think, is that, um, you know, everyone wants to get advice from a trusted friend. And it's so important as a consumer for you to be able to trust your financial advisor. But I think you have to recognize that trust should only go so far. You should trust your financial advisor to be honest and serve you appropriately, but you always have to be on your guard. And you need to be an intelligent, informed, skeptical consumer because even the best financial advice can lead you astray sometimes, some of the time. And and so I presume that you are a big fan of the fiduciary standard, yes? Yes, I am. Okay, so for those of you listening, this could be a running theme through the podcast. I'm going to drop F-bombs, not that one, you dirty-minded people. <laughs> but uh, the fiduciary standard, which is basically a rule that is present in most professions where you've got to put your client, your your customer, your prospects, um, your your patient, you got to put that person first. Like you can't just send your patient to the MRI lab where you own the business, right? Like you got to disclose it. You got to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And conflicts exist in every business, every single business. But this seems to be one where we are so close to people's pocketbooks can I read a definition from the dictionary? I wish you would. All right. This so, is this is from his book. Uh, hang on one second. Theater of the Mind. He's he. We okay. have a physical book. Yes, there's a physical book here, and I'm turning physical pages. So just one word of explanation, so people understand what we're doing here. Okay. Which is this book is called The Devil's Financial Dictionary, and it is in a dictionary format. So I'm going to read the term, then the part of speech, and then the definition. So I think this one is relevant for what we're talking about, Jill. The term is potential conflict of interest, noun. An actual conflict of interest. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think that's a very important concept for people to remember. I mean, whenever you look at a prospectus, whenever you meet with any investment professional, people will be uh, talking to you about potential conflicts. They're not potential. <laughs> They're real. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. We all have conflicts of interest. You do. I do. Everyone we meet has conflicts of interest. But if you're not aware of them or if the person downplays them or insists that they don't exist, which is quite common, or says, once I disclose it, I've swept it away, then that can present a real problem. So why is the industry so opposed to a fiduciary duty for uh, financial advisors that would obligate them to put investors' interests ahead of their own? I think many of the people in the investment industry 
themselves consider it pretty much a done deal that their firms and the people who work for them are going to assume this obligation of putting clients' interests ahead of their own, whether they're required to do so by law from the Department of Labor or whether it simply becomes a best practice. They seem to be accepting it. What we hear over and over again from firms is we've spent millions of dollars already complying with this thing. We don't like it that much, but the train has left the station. We're going to comply with this rule, whether it exists or not. But I think at the same time, there are a lot of people in Washington who are using it as a grandstanding opportunity. Most importantly, I think everyone should remember that the city of Washington is itself a business. It's an industry. And one of the ways that people in Washington raise money and make money is by, and this is particularly true for members of Congress, if you indicate that you're not entirely sure which way you might vote, (laughs) when X, Y, or Z comes up for a vote, um, your campaign contributions might go up by people who want to influence that coming vote. So members of Congress whose minds might already well be made up have an incentive to seem undecided, and that flushes a lot more money out. So I asked a CEO of a very large company maybe two years ago. I said, I don't understand why you guys are so opposed to fiduciary. I said, in fact, what what strikes me as strange is that right after the financial crisis, the it, if one firm, one firm had come out and said, we don't have to do this, but we are now, we have learned our lesson. And man, that was a brutal lesson. And we are now committing to the fiduciary standard for every part of our business. There will not be one rotten variable annuity sold in an IRA rollover account, ladies and gentlemen. It's just not happening. We're going to walk away from that business and we're going to do an entire campaign that is we put you first and we prove it by adhering to the to fiduciary. I think they would have completely scooped up assets. And you know what the answer was? That would cannibalize our business. <laughs> and that is the most disheartening part of the, like the drunk relative of the financial mm-hmm. services mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. That I actually do believe that if you put your clients first and you lead with that, you're probably going to be better off in the long term. I think so, too. Okay, that's the end of part one of my interview with Jason Zweig. Hey, stay tuned. Next week, he is so good. We have a whole second episode with The Wall Street Journal's Jason Zweig. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for our favorite part of the show, the Better Off Question of the Week. You know, this is where we answer your questions. If you have a financial question, feel free to shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com and we'll arrange to get you on the air live. So today we've got George who's calling from Ohio. Hi, George. Welcome to Better Off. And apologies for my froggy voice, just recovering from a little bronchitis. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm all right. So how can I help you out today? Okay, this is my question. I'm 58 years old. I have two houses, and one's paid for, which I'm working on, and one isn't the one I live in. Uh, I work for the state and county, and so I'm in a pension plan. The school puts like 14% into it, and I put about 12% or something 
and I have about 200000 in there. Mm-hmm. I inherited an IRA from my parents. It's got about 85000 in it. Mm-hmm. And I got that tax deferred 457 at school, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I have about 90000 in that. Okay. I want to retire in about six years. Now, and, and let me I, ask you a quick question. The, if you look at that, the pension estimate six years from now, does it look like that pension will essentially kind of cover your basic needs? Uh, there, there's, it's, if I can make it 66, I'll get about 3000 a month out of it. How much do you think you need? Oh, about that. I could probably live on. Okay, great. Okay. So a couple hundred thousand in the pension, 90000 in the 457, inherited IRA, you're rocking and rolling. Yeah. What else? Okay, now I have, I, I had a life insurance policy after my parents died, and I have $50,000 cash here with something to do. I don't know what to do with it. The tax deferred, I have an index fund. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I didn't know if I should maybe live off that 50000 and maybe double my money going into the tax deferred, or hmm. if I should buy, like, stocks like uh, Starbucks, because they're supposed to be opening, like, 2,000 stores in the next year. All right. Hold on. Slow down here, George, man. <laughs> Hang on one second. Okay. What? Let's start with this basic fact. You're not going to be picking individual stocks. You're just not going to do it. Unless you're telling me you want to set up a slush fund where you either could go on like a riverboat gambling trip or you could set up this slush fund and then this is just fun money that you could actually not care what happens to it, then okay. But I think you're asking a different question, which is, you know, are you really able to pick individual stocks? Probably not. I mean, yes, some people do for a period of time, but you know what? Over the long term, it is really hard to beat the index. And as you said, you own an index fund already. It's the cheapest way to go out and invest. So, heck, what are you spinning your wheels for? Um, let me ask you a question. How much money do you earn? Uh, uh, right now, it's about 60000 a year. So here's a couple of things. One is you've got a lot of tax-deferred money already right now, right? And so, yes, you could put more money into the tax-deferred account. But at the very least, um, what I would do is of the 50 grand, I would open up a Roth IRA, Pronto. I'd put right. I'd put your $6,500. Did you already file your taxes for, 20, for last year? I just actually went to a tax guy the other day, and I won't, you know, I won't see him again for a couple of weeks. So well, yeah, I could do something like so that. So why don't you tell him I want to put sixty five hundred in a Roth IRA contribution for last year? Then I'd okay. put sixty five hundred in for this year, and that's thirteen grand of your fifty, right? The reason why I like the Roth is that you already have money that's tax deferred. And so when you turn 70 and a half, you're going to have to take some of that money out every year, right? It's called a required minimum distribution. Roth money already been taxed. You already have this money. So pop it into the Roth and that's really easy. And then you're going to do the same thing really low-cost index funds, or go to a robo-advisor like our sponsor, Betterment, or whatever you want to do, but low-cost, no individual stocks. Now, with the rest of the money, okay, tell me you've got no other debt besides the mortgage, right? Uh, a small car payment, but no, I have no other debt. How, how much is left on the car? Uh, 10000 What's the interest rate? Oh, I'm guessing about five and a half. Pay that off. Pay that off with this money. Okay. All right, so there, we, we're burning up half your money already. Do you have an emergency reserve fund? Do you have money set aside in case something bad happens? 
Well, that that 50 was really kind of that. Okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make your two Roth contributions, one for last tax year, one for this year. You're going to pay off your car loan, and you're going to leave the rest of the money alone. God forbid something happens, now you've got cash. Okay, now I have to take like four or 5000 out of that IRA every year because my dad had already started withdrawing on it. Yep. So that was, uh, I had to keep it going, I guess. Yeah, you got to do it. Let's see, that's the rules on the beneficiary IRA. So add to it. You have a slush fund. You might want to pop up, like you said, you're putting 12% into your, uh, you're putting some money into your 457. Would you be bumping up from, you know, maybe a couple percent and then that'll be fine. You can live on the rest. But I wouldn't go too crazy with it. I like the Roth, pay off the car loan. You've got an emergency reserve, maybe a couple percent more and you're deferred. I'm putting 600 a month into deferred right now. And if I work another seven years, I was kind of wondering if I would get myself where I'd be forced to take so much and it would put me in a higher tax bracket because I put too much in that. Month. Yeah, I mean, look, you might, and uh, but you know, chances are it won't be that much more. And you know, I again, that's why I love the Roth money. In yeah. fact, if if I, if I were you, so I have my contribution you made for this year. Are you married? Uh, I'm getting married. I got engaged at Christmas. What? Fifty-eight years old and just getting married. I got that's a whole separate podcast. Um, <laughs> does your intended wife work? Uh, she's a nurse. Oh, she's living large. Nurses make a li- real money. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, anyway, encourage her to make a Roth contribution as well. You got kids from from a first no, marriage? No, nope. never had. Never had. She does. I've never had kids. Well, that's why you have all this money. Uh, yeah, I'm totally just, kidding I got, you. Kind of, I got a little lucky. I got a windfall, a nice windfall. So, All right. So Roth, car loan, a little bit more into your deferred comp, and that's it. All right. George, go forth, open your Roth, and thank you so much for calling. Okay. You have a good day. Take care, buddy. Okay. That's it. That's it for this episode of Better Off. Thanks again to Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal for joining us. And thank you for all those great questions. Don't forget, there's a new episode of the Better Off podcast every Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag Better Off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.